You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me here on a Thursday afternoon. I am back at my home here in Santa Barbara, California, and last week I was on the road. If you were to take a look at the video from last week's question and answer program, you would see that uh, I was in a pickup truck with blue skies and clouds behind me, not here in my normal little office here at my home on the west coast of California. Uh, I was there because I was visiting my son in rural Tennessee, and it was great to be able to do the question and answer program even though I was away from home. It worked out pretty great with our moderator, Devin, sending me the questions and me being able to respond uh, just over a very simple smartphone. So today, uh, what we're going to do is we're not going to have our normal lead question. Instead, what we're going to do is just focus directly straight away on the questions that you send us in the live chat. And so really, that's what we're going to take our time and concern ourselves with. And uh, I think it's going to be something that we've done occasionally before, a couple times before. Now we just want to take a breath and give more time to the question and answers that come in directly for us. Um, I'm going to deal with our first question that comes from Andunola. By the way, before I do, I do just want to say that while I was on the road, uh, we were at a gathering of people, a convention of sorts, where we were able to connect with uh, several people, several groups connected to our international work, and one group in particular that we're very pleased to gather with was the great team at TWR 360. Uh, That's Trans World Radio 360. That's the online presence of that great ministry of shortwave radio reaching places that nobody else has gone, or at least in the media context, can go. And uh, TWR360 is their online presence. And this is being, I don't know, syndicated, piggy-gated, piggybacked, um, available through their channel right now. Uh, You can access this live chat on the TWR360 website, or of course, right here directly on the YouTube channel. But it was wonderful to meet so many people from the team at TWR360. And uh, it was just a great time to connect with them. So we're very grateful for that relationship. And uh, especially because uh, it exposes us to an even broader international audience. Look, I don't want to play favorites with, um, you know, whether people from my own country here in the United States or people abroad, I just want to say I love being able to connect with an international audience. Okay, that being said, let me deal with Andunola's question, uh, or Adunola's question. What does ears to hear mean? Now, that's a great question, uh, Adunola. That phrase is repeated several times in the book of Revelation, and uh, perhaps other places in the scripture well, but where it's most prominent is at the end of each one of the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus Christ himself dictated to the Apostle John so that he could write those questions, uh, write those questions, write those letters down and distribute them 
to seven specific churches that were founded in the Roman province of Asia Minor. Today, we call that geographic piece of territory uh, the nation of Turkey, uh, or at least a part of the nation of Turkey. But in the old Roman days, in the days of the first century, they called it the Roman province of Asia Minor. These seven churches received these letters dictated to them by Jesus. And at the end of each one of those letters, Jesus says, let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which I think is really a very powerful way of saying that if you are awakened, if you have the spiritual, I don't know, uh, ability to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches, then you need to listen to it. It's a way of saying this. When God speaks to you, and we would say the predominant way that God speaks to people is in and through his word. I always tell people, if you want to hear a word from God, don't seek a mystical experience. Seek him in and through his word. Now, I do believe that God can and does speak to people uh, in some form. God does communicate to people outside his word. Uh, but again, I, I would just reiterate that if you want to hear a word from God, listen to his word, read his word. So if you have ears to hear, hear, pay attention to what God speaks to you in and through your ears. Here's another way to think of it. Do a little check for yourself. Do, do a little check. Check here. I have one ear. I have two ears. I suppose that almost everybody uh, that I'm speaking to right now has two ears and they're functioning to some degree or another. If you have ears to hear, God's speaking this to you. Pay attention to what God says and receive what he has to say. So I don't know, that's really how I would just most pointedly connect that. That's what it means to have ears to hear. God is saying, listen to my word to you. Pay attention to it. And really, not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. So thank you for that great question. Uh, Bodhi asks this question. Uh, I was wondering if you think that BLM is biblical. You know, Bodhi, um, political fads, cultural slogans come and go. What we need to do is always keep a focus on God's enduring, everlasting, eternal world word. And this is what we know from God's word. We know, first of all, that uh, any idea of racial superiority uh, is foreign to God and to the followers of God. We are all brothers in Adam. Now, we may not all belong to the family of God in the specific way. We're not all brothers and sisters in Christ because uh, I am a brother and sister in Christ with those who uh, also have repented and believed and been born again by God's Spirit. Yet, there is a common family that we share from one ancestor that we have, Adam and, of course, his wife Eve. The whole human race flows from that. There was never a second or third creation where God was creating people from different races. That's just nonsense. There is a common humanity of those who are made in the image of God, 
And that's an eternal, everlasting principle that outlasts whatever the latest political or cultural fad is. So we click to that. The other thing that we cling to in this regard is the idea that God wants the governments of his of this world, of his creation, God wants governments to do justice. That means punishing the guilty and not punishing the innocent. That, according to Romans 13, is one of the fundamental um, responsibilities of government. I won't necessarily say that it's the only responsibility, but it certainly is the fundamental responsibility, is to, with justice, that is, according to truth, according to facts, judge rightly and punish the guilty appropriately, of course, and to refrain from punishing the innocent. So um, that means that has application to what happens in our courts, what happens with law enforcement personnel. Uh, law enforcement personnel should have the ability and the, the right to punish the guilty, but to not punish the innocent. And where they do, it should be fixed. It should be addressed. There should be some kind of restitution or recognition of wrong. So those are two very concrete principles that I think we should cling to instead of getting swept up in whatever the uh, cause or the mania of the day is. Um, again, these things come and go. I think it's most important for God's people to be rooted in uh, what is eternal. And those are two among many relevant principles having to do with race and with what you want, might want to call justice in our world today. So um, th that's what I would say. I would say uh, cling to those things that are eternal and let that be your biblical focus. If you're talking about the political movement that is officially organized under the title BLM, uh, they have a tremendous amount within their philosophy, their stated philosophy, and in their organization that is against God and his will and those things that I have just spoken of. So, yeah, I, I don't think much of that, again, because just comparing it to God's eternal truth, we see that it's one of those causes of the current moment uh, that just doesn't hold uh, much strength or consistency compared to God's word. Okay, let me go into the next question there from Ethan. Ethan says, do you think sometimes God calls us away from non-sinful hobbies so that we can more seriously seek him? Ethan, I can uh, answer your, word, your question with one word. Yes, absolutely so. Yes, I don't have any doubt in my mind that there are times and places where God will communicate to his child. Um, and I'm going to use the word communicate because people seem very hung up on the idea of God speaking to somebody. Look, whether you want to, you know, when you start saying God speaks to somebody, people start having the expectation of an audible voice, uh, whatever it might be. Let's just say, I don't have any doubt that the Holy Spirit communicates to the children of God, if they will seek him, at certain times and certain places, saying, this is not sinful, but I don't want you to do it. 
You, you need to set aside time and place in your life for other pursuits. And friend, I think this is a very important principle. The Holy Spirit has a jealous concern for the people of God. And we need to be aware and accepting of the fact that the Holy Spirit may challenge you to not do something that other children of God have perfect liberty to do. Um, I'm trying to think of a non-controversial example, not because I'm afraid of controversy, but because when you bring up a controversial example, the focus becomes on the controversy itself and not on the matter itself. Okay, I'll use a illustration that uh, I hope isn't very controversial because I don't want the focus to be on the controversy, but on the principle. Let's say God speaks to a believer and says, I don't want you to eat meat. I want you to be a vegetarian. God communicates that to a believer somehow for whatever reason. And, and I mean, I could think of several theoretical reasons, but let's say God communicates that to a believer. Now, I believe, and I think I can show biblically from the Bible, that God makes no general command to his people, do not eat meat. That is not a general instruction or command. But God may speak to an individual believer and say, hey, I am the Lord of your life. And while I allow all my other children to do this, and that's between them and me, I am speaking to you right now and asking you to lay this down upon the altar of obedience. I believe it's very important that when a believer understands that that is what God is saying to them, communicating to them, that they need to do that. And they need to prevent themselves from going off on some other thing with other believers where they would begin to uh, think that all other believers must stop eating meat. You see, th this is what happens all the time. The Holy Spirit speaks to a believer about something and says, I want you to start getting up early to seek me. And instantly that believer starts to believe everybody needs to get up early and seek me. The Holy Spirit may communicate to a believer, I want you to stay up late and seek me. And instantly they start telling, you have to stay up late and seek God. You have to stop eating meat. You have to start eating meat, whatever it is. We so often want to take what the Holy Spirit speaks to us and make that universal among all believers. Resist that tendency. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Now, what God has clearly commanded in his word, that is universal for all believers. But what God communicates by the Holy Spirit to the individual believer that is not comprehended or covered, we should regard that as being to that individual believer and not something that they would put as a law or a rule on anybody else. So Ethan, I hope you understand what I'm saying here in that answer. And I, I think it is important, as I've said again, that we allow the Holy Spirit to have this somewhat jealous, it's kind of an old word um, to use in this regard, but I think it's an accurate word. We must allow the Holy Spirit to have his jealous ownership, lordship over our life, because that's what he is for us. He is our Lord. And we recognize that maybe just for a season, 
he may speak to us about something that he would not speak to another believer about. Okay, let me go on to the next one. Jiska asks, I'm taking that that's Jiska, not Jessica, but Jiska says, can you talk a little bit about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and what it means? Jiska, that's a great question, and I could take you to the relevant passages in the Bible that speak about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, uh, because this was a question that, of course, came to Jesus, and uh, Jesus had to answer this question relevant to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So let me just speak to you, though, about this and say that without turning to those passages, because uh, I'm going to try to get to as many questions as I can, but you, you can go to my Bible commentary, uh, EnduringWord.com, uh, either there at the website or we have an app. By the way, I'm pleased to tell you, I haven't gotten statistics for the last few months, uh, but maybe, well, maybe about a month is the last time I got statistics. But the last time we checked, we had more than a quarter million downloads of our free Bible app. Uh, I'm very happy about that. So uh, quarter million downloads, 250,000, well more than that. Uh, you can get it too. Just go to the uh, App Store on iTunes, go to Google Play. It's absolutely free and it's a way to access my text commentary in both English and Spanish. <laughs> There's no charge to you. We're not pumping out the ads and all of that. So anyway, um, you can look those passages up on my online commentary on the website or on the app. But let me just give you a summary. Jesus warned of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the context of his enemies attributing his miraculous works to the power and working of Satan. Now, that's a very heavy thing. If somebody is so hardened in their rejection of Jesus that they can look at the good and wonderful and amazing things that Jesus the Messiah does, and if they can say, that's not the work of God, that's the work of Satan, then that person is hardened in their rejection of Jesus Christ. And they are in danger of staying in that place of a hardened rejection of Jesus. Given that, I would define this. Because Jesus said, this is the sin that won't be forgiven, I would define the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit like this. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the hardened, settled, maybe you can even say permanent, rejection of what the Holy Spirit communicates to us about who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. The Spirit's job, it's not his only job, but it's his predominant job, is to testify to us about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If a person so rejects what the Holy Spirit communicates to us about Jesus then I would simply say that person is in great danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, in particular in their regard about Jesus. Now, Jiska, we have people from time to time who have great fear that they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. 
And I'll give you a surefire way to know that you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It's that to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ right here, right now. To go ahead and do it. Because if you repent and believe, you are not settled in your rejection of Jesus Christ. You may have for your entire life rejected the testimony that the Holy Spirit has communicated to you about who Jesus is and what he came to do to rescue you and all of humanity would put their faith in him. You may have rejected that testimony your entire life, but if you will cease that rejection right here, right now, then you are no longer a rejecter of the Holy Spirit's testimony. Now you are a receiver of the Holy Spirit's testimony and you have ceased to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You have ceased to reject Jesus Christ. So the unforgivable sin is the settled, hardened, permanent rejection of Jesus Christ and what the Holy Spirit communicates to us about Jesus Christ. Let me add one more thing about that, Jiska. There are people out on social media. I can, I can hardly bring myself to say this. There are people out on the internet, on social media, that encourage and invite people to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They do it as a joke. They do it as a, well, ha, 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 now you can never be forgiven. Now you've sold everything to Satan, whatever. That, the people who encourage others to do that will bear an almost unspeakable responsibility before God for what they have done. Sometimes I think if you choose to send yourself to hell, well, God has given you the choice to do that. You have the choice. God has given you real choice. And if you choose to send yourself to hell, well, that's your choice. But if you deliberately work to drag other people to hell? Dear friend, you will bear a great responsibility for all eternity for that. But listen, I don't care how badly you've sinned. I don't care if you have sinned in the past by encouraging other people to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you have, with a great lack of wisdom, accepted somebody else's invitation to say that you're publicly blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I don't care if you've rejected Jesus Christ and the communication of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is a thousand times before. Today, right now, you can repent and believe and Jesus will accept you. He will accept you because it will be evidence that you have not permanently rejected Jesus Christ. Thanks for that question. Jesus gets a great question. All right, next comes from Giannis. Says, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus teaches us to ask God not to lead us into temptation when we pray. And yet in James chapter 1, verse 13, we read that God tempts no one. Please clarify. Okay, 
Giannis, l- let me explain to you, because the idea behind the original words that are translated there, and look, I need to make it clear, of course, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't have a Greek New Testament in front of me, or I don't want to access the one on my computers here. So I'm just doing this speaking in very general terms. The biblical words that are translated tempt or temptation are broader than the words that we commonly use in English or in German or in other languages. The biblical words that are translated tempt in the Bible really also very generously encompass or cover the idea of testing. Testing. So, there's different kinds of testing. There is testing that is not an invitation to evil. It's just simply a a test that comes into our life. There is other testing that is very clearly an invitation to evil, to do something evil. Well, in James chapter 1, James is making it clear, something that we can gather from other passages of Scripture, that God is holy and pure, and God never invites someone to do evil. God never entices somebody to do evil. When somebody is enticed to do evil, that didn't come from God. However, God does allow and permit believers and those who don't yet believe to be tested. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, again, that's Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and he says, lead us not into temptation. The heart behind that request is, God, don't ever lead me into a testing place that's beyond my ability. You, you need to deliver me from such things. Deliver me from any testing that I can't bear, testing that I can't endure in and through you, and, and not allow me to uh, be subjected to that. So really, Giannis, the answer to your question is found in the distinction that we make with our words between testing and temptation. But the biblical words that are translated really doesn't have that distinction. The same word is used to cover both concepts. So I hope that's helpful for you. Sherry asks this question. I have a daughter that questions whether or not that God exists. She wonders if he is someone man created to have hope in someone or something. Well, Sherry, your daughter's, um, you know, thinking about this is a very common way that people think today and throughout history, especially in the modern age. People have thought, look, there is no God. People just create the idea of God uh, because they want somebody to explain the things they can't explain. They want somebody to make them feel good when they feel bad. Uh, They're looking for a big invisible friend in the sky, so they just create one in their own imagination. Now, the first thing I would say to your daughter, Sherry, and of course say to you as well, is this. If there is 
know God, then all of our wishful, hopeful thinking will not create one. If there is no God, all my hopes and dreams and confidence and whatever faith that there is a God does not make a God if there is no God. However, if there is a God, then all the doubts and atheists and attacks and skeptics and all the rest of it throughout the years, they cannot erase the existence of God if there actually is a God. So I just want to say, Sherry, one thing you should tell your daughter is there is hopeful thinking on both sides. Some people say, well, you just create a God in your mind because you wish there was a God. And I would answer back, well, that may be true, but have you considered that you deny there's a God because you desperately hope and wish that there is no God that you will have to stand before on the day of judgment, that there is no God who sets a moral order to the universe, that there is no God that holds men and women accountable for their life and their thinking and their actions. The wishful thinking does not run only one way. Now, as for whether or not really there is a God, that's something that we can, you know, talk about in much greater depth. Why we believe there is confidence to believe. And I, I, I'll just give you one of the most basic arguments. It's that we believe that something does not come from nothing. Now, I know what the reply of the atheist is. They say, well, David, you believe in an eternal God. We just believe in eternal matter. But something has to be eternal. Something has to be uncreated. But an uncreated being fits in perfectly with the definition, both philosophically and biblically, with what God is. The idea of uncreated matter, a beginning without a beginner, a design without a designer, that goes against almost uncountable scientific principles, and of course, biblical principles as well. But the main thing I would communicate to your daughter, Sherry, is simply the idea, there is wishful thinking on both sides. So we have to be uh, careful. We have to be rigorous. And we have to say, we will not allow wishful thinking to decide the issue for us one way or another. All right. Let me continue on here. Uh, Suji asks a question. Hope I'm pronouncing that way, uh, that, that correctly. Suji asks, the Bible says Jesus was fully God and fully human. That's really amazing. But what does that really mean or look like? Where can, where can I apply this in my life? Okay, Suji. Um, Sometimes we use words to describe biblical ideas that maybe aren't the best words or can be easily misunderstood. And 
I have used the terminology many times. Jesus was fully God and fully human, fully man. But maybe that's not the best terminology to use. Let me explain to you what I mean. When we say fully, mostly in English, the idea is of complete. And Jesus was not completely man because he was more than a man. Jesus was not completely God in the sense that that all describes the totality of his being. What we really mean when we say fully God and fully man is we mean truly God and truly man. How the two natures existed together in one person, well, we don't exactly know. There's we can say more about what it was not than about what it was. Um, in other words, we know it was not Jesus was man on the outside, but God on the inside. No, he was truly human and truly God. Two natures existing in one person. The other way that I like to describe this idea of what we call the incarnation, God adding humanity, is just with that phrase that I used. Don't think of the incarnation as subtraction. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, did not subtract anything from his deity. He added humanity to his deity. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. The incarnation is not subtraction, it's addition. Adding humanity to deity. Now, you ask, what does it look, mean? I mean, I think I've explained that. You ask, where? how can I apply this in my life? Here is the wonderful thing. Jesus as the true God-man is God and able to perfectly save us because let's face it only God can do perfect things and he's man also able to save us because he connects with humanity and can be a true representative of humanity in a way that God apart from the incarnation could not and in a way that not even angels could not so it means that Jesus is able to save in every aspect possible. That's the truth of the fact that the Bible tells us that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Suji, th these are great questions. I'm glad you and I, if I can say I'm impressed, if I can boast about my uh, YouTube audience here. I'm very, very pleased at uh, the quality of the questions that come from our YouTube audience. I also want to say thank you to Devin, our moderator. Uh, Devin was with me at that convention where we met with a lot of our international partners and uh, maybe established some new partners for the work going forward. Uh, so we had a great time at that particular convention, and uh, he's our moderator today. So another question forwarded comes from Adonis, says... How would you respond to someone who says that Ephesians 5.26 refers to water baptism, 
What if they used it as evidence for water baptism being required for salvation? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Um, Ephesians 5, 26 says this, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Here, Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking about the work that Jesus does for his people. Here, symbolically or metaphorically presented to us as the the bride of Christ, um, the, the wife, so to speak, the bride of Jesus. And he's using it to illustrate how husbands should care for their wife. Um, now, a husband should care for his wife this way because Jesus does. He, again, reading verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, I would say very plainly that Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, is not speaking of baptism. So what would I say to someone who says that it does? I would say, well, my dear brother or sister, you're just incorrect on that. You're, you're wrong. Because the washing indicated in verse 26 is not the washing of water by baptism, is the washing of water by the word of God. It's the word of God that has a cleansing power and effect in the believer's life. So first of all, what would I respond with to someone who, I would first of all just say, look, just plainly look at the words here. It's not talking about the water of baptism. It's talking about the water by the word of God. Okay. But secondly, the idea that baptism absolutely is required for salvation, I, I think can be disproven from several passages in the New Testament. Now, I'm always hesitant to speak on this, and I'll tell you why. Because if you say that baptism is not essential for salvation, this is what people hear. Oh, then baptism is not important. No! Baptism is vitally important. I'll say this. Baptism is not essential perhaps for salvation, but it is essential for obedience and for discipleship. I would almost say this. Don't call yourself a disciple of Jesus unless you're baptized. Because if you're a disciple, it means you do what your master, your rabbi tells you to do. And Jesus told his people to be baptized. That's what he told them to do. If you are a believer and you are not baptized, you are a disobedient believer and you are falling short in your discipleship in that regard. Now, maybe in your particular church tradition, Maybe there's some kind of preparation for baptism. Maybe you're taking class. Maybe you're on your way. Maybe, you know, okay, they got a baptism scheduled in a month. Okay, look, I'm, I'm not trying to put any condemnation on a person like that. But if you are a believer and don't care about being baptized, you're in disobedience. You're, you're not being an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ 
because Jesus told his followers to be baptized in his name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Adonis, that's how I would address that. I hope that makes some sense to you. Golden asked this question. Did Jesus literally suffer our diseases and sicknesses? What does Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 mean? So here's Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. And I think really what the question is getting to is not verse 4. Let me turn over this quickly to Isaiah 53, where we see that it says in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Okay, um, Golden, let me ask, answer the question this way. Yes, Jesus suffered for our diseases and sicknesses. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 has reference to both the healing of sin-sick souls and bodies that are sick from the effects of sin in the created world. So let me explain to you. The reason why I say that is because that verse, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, is quoted at least twice in the New Testament. I mean, look, you could look it up. I think it's once in Matthew and the other one in 1 Peter, but I'm just guessing that off the top of my head. It's quoted twice. And if you look at those and study how it's quoted in the New Testament, the Matthew or whatever it is in the Gospels, the Gospels quotation of Isaiah 53, 5 mentions it in terms of people having their bodies healed. The other reference, and again, I believe I'm doing this off the top of my head, in 1 Peter or whatever, the other place where Isaiah 53, 5 is quoted in the New Testament and applied, it's in terms of healing our sin-sick souls. I believe it applies to both. So this is how I would explain it. God has made provision for the healing of our bodies in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Now, you say, well, David, that's what the prosperity guys teach. That's what the health and wealth guys teach. The, the people who teach that a true believer will never be sick, will never have any problems with their bodies, they say because it's all been accomplished at the cross. Now, listen, Jesus paid for the work of redeeming our bodies at the cross. There's no doubt about that. But here's what we understand about our salvation. Our salvation is not yet complete. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. And God makes a solemn promise to every believer. I will perfectly heal and perfect your body and God calls that resurrection. Now, I believe that God heals people today. Absolutely. But the 
ultimate promise of God's healing and work of bringing his salvation to our bodies is accomplished in the resurrection. We know that there will be a day when absolutely no believer is sick or infirmed in any way that they are all perfected in their bodies. And that's heaven. That's the resurrection. Until then, God may give glorious previews of that ultimate work and power right now. I believe God heals today. I've seen it. I rejoice in it. But the ultimate promise of healing and bodily perfection, if we want to use that, it was paid for by Jesus at the cross, and it will be accomplished in the believer's resurrection. So, Golden, that's how I understand this kind of distinction that's made here. I hope that's helpful for you. Sebastian asks the question, can the gift of prophecy also be the predicting, predicting the future of a person as it happened to Timothy? Well, um, Sebastian, I would say yes. The gift of prophecy can be used uh, in a predictive sense. It's not necessarily in a predictive sense. When many people hear prophecy, they only think of the idea of foretelling, that is, speaking about the future. But the idea of prophecy goes far beyond foretelling. It's really more the idea of forth-telling, revealing and communicating from the mind and the heart of God, which can include the idea of predicting the future, but not necessarily. I can say this because it's happened in my own life. When I was a teenager, I was at a prayer meeting with some dear brothers and sisters, and they laid hands on me, and somebody prophesied over me. And I'm not going to get into the details, but they prophesied things about my future that were, (laughs) nobody could have guessed them at the time. They were crazy. They were just, who would think that? And I can say that in great measure, maybe not completely, I mean, you could kind of argue about it, but in great measure, those prophecies have been fulfilled. My future, in some way, was prophesied and predicted, or an aspect of my future, not in any complete sense. So, yes, this, this can happen. God can communicate in that way. It can be. John asked the question, if God wrote a book for each of our lives, and we don't do exactly what's in this book. Do you think it's possible that God would send us back in time and live the same life over again to fix our future? John, that's a very interesting question. So I'm glad that you asked it. First of all, you present the idea of God's will for our life being like a book that, you know, we're supposed to follow page by page And the idea is, is, you know, here we are, we're following along in this book as it works through our life. And somehow it's almost possible for us to jump off the page. And if we jump off the page, then we have to do whatever we can to get back on the page. Uh, And if we can't get off the page, you're wondering if maybe God might send us back to the beginning of the book. Well, John, let me say this. Friend, I think you're conceiving of the will of God in the wrong way. It's a common way that people think about the will of God, and it's a way regarding the will of God 
that sometimes pastors promote this kind of thinking. Maybe I have in my own teaching from time to time. But you're kind of talking about the idea that God's will is like a path. And if we get off the path, then nothing's right until we're on the path again. uh, Or we can permanently be out of God's will. Look, instead of thinking of God's will like a map that you must follow, think of God's will as being like a guide that is given to you. The, the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God and through the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit is your guide. Don't worry about the map. In some sense, don't even worry about the trail. Just follow your guide. If you think you're out of the will of God, then seek God in his word and let God guide you into his will. And then just follow your guide. Your guide will never leave you or forsake you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, period. So Jesus, or Jesus working through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he is our guide. Stop thinking of the will of God as being like a map or a trail and start thinking of finding God's will by simply staying close to your guide, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to you as you stay in his word and and do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do in and through his word. That's the way to think of the will of God. And here's something else, John. The idea that God's sending us back in time to live the same life over again to fix our future, that's really not a Bible idea. The Bible tells us, it's in Hebrews, I believe in chapter 4, that it's given unto men once to die and then to face the judgment. So we don't continually live again and, you know, rework the same things until we get them right. No, that that's not the idea. Um, the idea is, again, that we have one life to live. We live this life now on this earth. When we die on this earth, we will continue to live life for eternity. You are an eternal being, and you're not going to go back and live your life again in some kind of alternate universe or multiverse or something like that. So again, thank you for that question, John. It's a very thought-provoking question. Okay, we'll take a few more questions here. Richard asks, Why is it that before Jesus, there are very few mentions of demons, but during Jesus and after Jesus, it seems we hear and read uh, more about demons? That's true, Richard. Uh, The New Testament speaks a lot more about demons and the demonic than the New, than the Old Testament does. Um, Even given that the Old Testament is much longer. I think that the best way to answer that question is to understand that there are certain things that God just waited to reveal um, in the way that he unfolded his revelation throughout history. 
there's a verse, I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Light and, no, excuse me, I quoted that wrong. Life and immortality came to light through Jesus Christ. This is why, for example, the understanding of the afterlife is shadowy and incomplete in the Old Testament. Why? Because God waited until Jesus is coming to give more light to the issue of life and immortality. So again, I think that's 1 Timothy 1.10. Life and immortality came to light through Jesus Christ. So if God waited until the ministry of Jesus on this earth to tell us more about life and immortality, I could see where the same thing would be true regarding telling us more about the demonic and more about the angelic. This Sunday night coming up, uh, I teach a special class. Uh, you could call it a class. It's just there in the uh, sanctuary where we have our normal services. But I teach a special class at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. Um, it's part of our Abide Deeper series. And I'm going to deal with the topic of systematic theology that we call uh, angelology. It's kind of a weird name. Demonology. I'm going to talk about angels and demons. And uh, we'll talk about these things in greater detail, but uh, I, I just think it's important to understand that um, God waited to reveal more information on things until the coming of Jesus. Uh, just as life and immortality came to light by Jesus Christ, so God waited until the coming of Jesus and the establishment of the New Testament before revealing more in these particular areas. Okay, his servant asks a question. Should we mark and avoid those who preach conditional security? Uh, his servant, I, I can give you a quick answer, and I would say no. And let me explain that answer. Mark and avoid applies to people that we would consider to be heretics. Now, let me give you my definition of a heretic. Uh and again, to get, I could give a shorter or a longer definition of heretic. Let me give you a short, very succinct definition of a heretic. Um, and I'll admit, this is not a full definition. But I, I reserve the term heretic for those where if you believe what they teach, you're not going to heaven. You're not saved. You're going to hell. I'll say that again. I reserve the term heretic for those who, if you believe what they teach, you're not going to go to heaven. Now, I believe that people can be, and in fact are, wrong about a lot of things that fall short of what we would call heresy. It's wrong but it's not heresy. So conditional security, however someone feels about it, you, we would just say that that's not a salvation dependent uh, doctrine, not in my view. 
someone can still be saved and have differing opinions on that subject. So that's how I would answer that question for you there, his servant. And this will be the finally question here from Caleb and Gabby. Said, did the definition of biblical names come before or after the biblical characters lived? For example, Jacob being the supplanter. By the way, a supplanter is kind of like a cheater, uh, someone who deceives people to gain something from them. Uh, Caleb and Gabby, I would simply say this. In general, the biblical definition for the names came before. So the name Jacob had the association of supplanter, cheater, deceiver before uh, the name was given to Jacob. Really, the meaning or the sense behind the name came before the giving of the name itself. That's an interesting question, one that I hadn't thought of before, uh, but I'm glad that you asked it. Well, let me say again, I'm so pleased that you've been able to join me today for this Thursday live question and answer time. Next week, uh, I plan on doing it again right here from uh, my home on the West Coast of California. And I hope that you can join me then. Uh, It's a great blessing for me. And I hope that you will also continue to pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word, especially for our work of continuing to improve, develop, translate, and distribute these free Bible resources to as many believers and seekers around the world as we can. So uh, thank you for joining me today. God bless you, and I hope that you can join us next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.